0: there. This is Rich Cooper with the Space Foundation, and this is the Space For You podcast, our podcast series that sits down with the people who make today's space community what it is, a truly out-of-this-world and extraordinary place. Today, I'm joined by Sean Wilson, who is the Director of Media and Public Relations at Northrop Grumman's Space Systems. Sean has worked as a communicator for a number of different companies, but in a role at Northrop. She's one of the people that helped shape how that company's messaging and strategy is communicated to the public, shareholders, media, and so forth. And having someone like her to talk about how we tell the story of space is something I've wanted to do for some time. Sean, thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. What a great intro. Thank you.
0: Well, my pleasure. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the space community.
1: I grew up in Houston, you know, that's Space City, right? So with NASA in my backyard, there was always something about NASA going on in the community. My dad used to take us to Johnson Space Center quite a bit. He, I wouldn't say he was a space buff, but he was a certified pilot. Um, and he worked at a place called Hooks Airport in the 60s. And a lot of the Apollo astronauts would do... know some of their touch-and-go flight training and stuff like that um, at Hooks on the north side of Houston. So he was a little bit enamored with with that era of course and so he would take us kids to JSC and back in the 80s you could just drive on site and wander around and I remember he took us into I think it was the Teague Auditorium back then used to be set up like a museum And he took us in there once and I just remember seeing, you know, capsules and the murals and all the things. And I just thought, wow, this space stuff is so cool, but it really wasn't until fifth grade until, you know, Kristen McAuliffe became the first educator astronaut. And it it really caught my attention again. You know, this was such a big deal and that mission was followed so closely for kids, my age um, in our science classes. So, When that tragedy happened in January of 86, I was already pretty invested. I don't think I understood the gravity of it at the time, really, but it left an indelible mark on me. So as I got older, my interest shifted to art and surfing and music and boys, of course, you know, and it just wasn't until I decided to enlist in the Air Force after high school that space just came back into my life sort of by accident is kind of funny. You know, I I tested quite high on the ASVAB test, which is a test you take to get into the military. And my recruiter said you could pick any job, but my life circumstances were that I wanted to just join quickly. I wanted to go to basic training as fast as I could. And and he said, Okay, we've got two jobs that are leaving next week for, for basic. You can be a dental hygienist or you could do something called space operations. And <laughs> so to me that was kind of a new brainer because I was not interested in working on teeth for the rest of my life. And so that's that's kind of how I got my start. And and after my enlistment was up, you know, I wanted to get back to Houston. And so back that was nineteen ninety eight, I spammed faxed and snail mailed and, you know, barraged every contractor within the greater Houston area that had anything remotely to do with NASA. And I think I finally broke one down and they said, please if you'll stop emailing us, we'll hire you. <laughs> so, and so that's kind of how I got my NASA career started, by sheer persistence.
0: Now, you're not just a communicator, though. In fact, in preparing for this podcast, I discovered something really unique about you, besides the fact that you're also a children's author, but that you've been an astronaut instructor. Now, tell us about that. What does it take to teach an astronaut how to do their job?
1: So that was a really cool job. And I kind of fell into that role again, you know, by accident, sort of. So back in two thousand three or four, I was doing education outreach for the biological sciences office at JSC, you know, teaching kids about cell science and the bioreactor and how they, you know, with would, would grow cells in three dimensional space and all this stuff. And it was it was really cool. But when the constellation program was announced and that got underway. You know, a lot of the science funding got cut and quite a bit of our division was left without a job. And so the contractor that I worked with at the time, they were so great. And they they went around and evaluated, you know, people for certain jobs and they placed I want to say all of us, but I don't I don't really remember the time. But I ended up in that astronaut instructor position because I, one, had a, had a background in writing, so there was a tech writing aspect, but I also had been an instructor and evaluator in the Air Force, so having that on the resume is what got my foot in the door, and I was able to go through an instructor training school um, that uh, United Space Alliance used to put on for JST, and they would train all of their astronaut instructors there, and it, it was a, it was a really cool thing to be a part of. So I fell into the crew healthcare systems training group, and I eventually became an instructor and I taught astronauts. Basically I taught them on where the, all of the medical equipment was on board space station uh, in the US lab, where to find all of the all of the medicines, the med kits, and all of that. I taught CPR in space, how to use a respirator support pack, which I think they have AEDs now, which is different. The way they do things a little bit different now than what I used to train on. But, uh, but yeah, it was a really, really cool opportunity and probably one of my favorite jobs. I, I also got to do simulation. So we would teach, um, go through the motions of an astronaut kind of day in the life in the mock-ups in Building 9 at JSC, where all of the, the you know, the, the life-size space station mock-up is. I teach them how to exercise and, and all of the really cool health-related things. It was a really cool job.
0: Now, in helping to train some of those crews, and in particular, the the expedition crews for their missions aboard the space station, that experience has you encounter, I'm sure, a number of challenges. I mean, you've not been an astronaut. You've not been on board the space station. Fortunately, we've not had many, many medical emergencies on board the station. How challenging of an experience was that to, again not having been an astronaut been up there teaching them to do these things is it all about immersion uh with getting involved with the technology or is it something more than that
1: so it was a lot of things so they do classroom training right so there's actual lectures that they have to sit through and you know you go through understanding why we have certain equipment on board space station and how things work and where things can be found but yeah the the simulations is where that immersion training happens. So, you know, you work with a group when I was, I don't know how they do it now, because again, this has been 10, 15 years ago, but as a group with the environmental control team, you know, all the different teams that make up all the different systems aboard the space station, you all get together and you create these scenarios to teach astronauts how to react to certain things. You know, back then we would even have evacuation drills so you, you say okay it's filling with smoke where do you go how do you get out you know where do you find your ppe and so yeah it was a lot of immersion immersion work one of the things that a lot of the instructors would get to do is fly in the c9 the or, or the vomit comet so you kind of learn how okay if i have to teach somebody how to do cpr in space here i am on earth it's not the same you know, you, you do compressions on someone's chest and you're just going to throw it away. So what do you do to mitigate that? Like you flip upside down, you stick your feet on on the other side of the module, right? To brace yourself against that law of physics, <laughs> so to speak. So you train in the vomit comet on how to do those things. Now, my, my experience with the vomit comet was not ideal. <laughs> I did not. I was probably the reason they call it the vomit comet. But But yeah, it's a full immersion experience to train them how to how to go through the motion of a day day to day operations or through a contingency.
0: How does having that teaching experience help you in communicating highly technical missions and technologies to different audiences?
1: You know, in general I've always taken issue with people who overcomplicate things. You know, i I know the space stuff is very complicated, just to put it bluntly right. We know that. But you don't have to make it sound that complicated. There's ways to remove the jargon and the acronyms. And, you know, when I when I was doing instructing, it wasn't just to the astronauts. I would also teach classes of interns who we were going through the intern process at JSD and they wanted to learn about all the different disciplines. So, So I would get to teach younger kids, you know, how things work and what things meant. And you can't throw out all the jargon and acronyms at them because they're not going to know what you're talking about. So it's, it's all, that kind of stuff has always bothered me. So I've always thought, you know, you kind of talk on that eighth, ninth, 10th grade level to most of your audiences, right? That's how you could best communicate these complicated subjects. I mean, nobody wants to be speaking in front of a, a group and look out and see glazed eyes because nobody understands what you're talking about. <laughs> so, and that, that's the number one rule of being a communicator is always know your
0: audience. How and why did you make that transition from being an astronaut instructor to becoming a space communicator?
1: My transition into that uh, was a little circuitous. I I started out wanting to be an aerospace engineer. And I probably got through the end of my sophomore year, probably, and started my junior year and I could not pass calculus. I just couldn't, it was, I call it my kryptonite. And no matter how many times I took it, I just couldn't pass it. And there was no way of getting around that to, to go on that AE track. So at some point I realized I was far better at communicating about space than I was actually doing the engineering side of it. And I changed my major that actually happened before i became an astronaut instructor so I, I changed my my major to comms and i thought you know my experience in operations in the air force and, and and understanding working on space station program for a few years before that could bring a different perspective to communication you know i i love to write i loved communicating I i didn't mind the public speaking side of things and so I set out to find a job in communication.
0: Growing up, what were uh, you, you talked about that uh, your kryptonite of calculus? I don't think you're alone in that. I certainly was not going to be an engineer with my math skills. That uh, my parents and several math teachers can attest on that. But I am curious about when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite subjects to study that put you on the path that you're on today?
1: So I did really like the biological sciences. I I really really like that. And I was always interested in astronomy and weather. I didn't get to take, you know, astronomy and weather classes, but those were always things I was really interested in watching, you know, PBS shows and things like that, but my favorite subjects were art and writing. So I think having that almost equal balance between left brain and right brain is what set me on a path to do communications for a technical field, like say.
0: Who is the teacher or mentor that inspired you to pursue your career? Again, you talk about your Air Force experience and the time as an astronaut instructor. Was there anybody in the course of your path there that stands out that really became a guide to you, an inspiration?
1: You know, I'd like like to say there was, um, but it's really hard to pinpoint that one person or that one pivotal event that really put me on that course, I mean, I can really chalk up my career with stubborn determination. <laughs> there there have been people who have helped and who saw potential in me early on and gave me some really good opportunities, but there's been others who tried to, to, to not do that, to put me in my place, so to speak, And and it's almost been, you know, I came at it from really you're gonna you're gonna try to put me in my place, but I'm gonna show you what I can do. I can I can do better than anything ever could conceive that I could do. So yeah, I don't know. I don't really think I can attribute it to one person. Just my own stubbornness.
0: <laughs> well, stubbornness works, and that has certainly uh, mm-hmm. been a part of you know the space community. But as much as there's stubbornness in any industry, there's also a lot of changes that go on and again like me you've worked in the space community a while and and how do you think it's changed and how has that communicator role evolved in that time period
1: so it's changed a lot right you know i started in space in 94 and didn't really start doing pure communications type work specifically till about 2002 three so if you you put that into perspective of what, what's going on in the communications industry since then, you know, social media, social media has given a whole new level of accessibility to space, as well as a new level of scrutiny, right? It makes precision in our communications extremely imperative. You know, I, I was really privileged, again, to be in public affairs at Johnson Space Center, when social media became really popular, or actually when it started, I guess. You know, Veronica McGregor out at JPL did the first NASA tweet up back in 2009. So I got to work on organizing the first one that they did at JSB that same year. And it shifted from social media being, oh, you know, don't forget to put social media in your comms plan to now social media is driving a lot of the communications that we do and digital media is driving it. So it, I've seen a, a drastic change. It's a really interesting couple of decades to be a part of the communications field, for sure, because of it.
0: I want to explore, I'm going to pull that thread a little bit more about the role that social media plays. But in exploring this with you, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what you do to prepare communications plans for a launch. And and also what it takes to do a mission communications plan, because they really are to very distinct operations. A lot of people obviously go to onto social media, go on their computers, watch news sites or company sites to watch a launch unfold. So I'd like to start with you in talking about how you put together a launch communications plan first. Can you share some of the steps and the planning that that requires? And, and then after that, we'll get into planning a mission communications plan.
1: Where I am now here at, at Northrop Grumman, one thing that I guess we could talk about is a resupply mission for space station. So our company provides both the Antares rocket and the Cygnus spacecraft. So that's that's pretty unique, I think, scenario. Internally within our company, the launch vehicle through the rocket and the spacecraft are two different divisions. So. We have to coordinate messaging, timeline, et cetera, across a pretty broad group. And so, as you know, the key key to communication for these types of events is, is preparation. We plan several months in advance for a wide range of scenarios. We don't just plan for success. We have to plan for all the different things that can happen and all the communication pieces, press releases, social media, web content, contingency statements, all of that is written and approved well ahead of time. So you're prepped that day and not having to, to go back and rewrite things um, when you're in the heat of the moment uh, during the launch. And, and for Space Station missions too, you know we work really closely with our NASA counterparts at, at headquarters in terms of coordinating messages, supporting any launch briefing, broadcast, anything like that. So for our team, you know, we've been doing this since 2013. Our demo mission for anterior sickness was back in, in September of that year. So we do have our planning kind of down to a science. While each mission does have different things, different science and, and payloads and experiments that we do take up, take up to space, you know, we relatively have a, a pretty good method we start about three months in advance and getting our messaging down and getting our products written, and then they go through the approval process well ahead of, of the launch. So for a launch event, we also, communication supports the on-site activities, anything from guest operations to VIP events. We help organize and oversee media relations. So if there's journalists are on site. We provide them backgrounders and information, uh, give them access to subject matter experts to do interviews. We sub- support our subject matter experts to make sure they're well prepped and, you know, comfortable speaking to the media. And then we're there to manage a crisis if we need to in the event of a, a really bad day.
0: How hard is it to prepare some of these absolutely brilliant engineers that are literally fastening an incredible amount of materials and put it into orbit in the right time and space, again, they're often at a much higher level than regular folks. How hard is it to prepare them to basically, you know, talk to the media and talk to regular people about this?
1: Yeah, you know, some are easy and others are not. That's one of the things I like about the space industry is we do have a lot of unique personalities. And I've gotten to deal with some really fun ones throughout my career. But for us, you know, for our team currently, you know, we we do media training. We do train executives, directors, VPs. We do make sure that they are well-versed in the talking points. We know that they're well-versed in their business. But talking to customers and talking to employees is drastically different than talking to the media. And that's what our job is, is to help help synthesize all of their brilliance and all the great information that they have down to those those pithy sound bites that really resonate with a general public audience or a space trade audience. We do conduct, I know it's a horrible term, but we call them murder boards, right? So we, we will sit down with our executives and throw all the hard questions at them a week or so prior to an event, to a launch event, and say, okay, have you thought about this? And and what about this other tangential program? Have you thought, you know, can you tell me what's going on with that? Because we do get questions like that during press briefings sometimes that are sort of related to what's going on, but not quite. And we have to make sure that the, those that we put out in front to speak to the media are well prepared for that.
0: You've talked about preparing those launch engineers and the, the launch plan. Let's talk about mission planning because missions obviously take a lot longer in time. What are the biggest differences between preparing a launch communication strategy and a mission communication strategy?
1: We did our campaign, our communications planning for the first mission extension vehicle was probably a year in the making or even longer. Our company has been developing this technology for quite a long time and to be able to launch it and put it into operation last year and earlier this year was just, it's just phenomenal to be a part of such a revolutionary technology, right? But in terms of, of communications, you know, we we had that customer identified timeframe is a little sketchy but I, you know, like several months prior to the launch, obviously. So we started planning that communications campaign for the NVV launch. And then the historical docking with that NLSAT satellite earlier this year, several months in advance. You know, you, you plan your press releases to announce your first customer, and you, you engage the media, do media briefings around that. I think we actually rolled out that customer announcement at State Symposium, if I can recall. So, so yeah, media events, press releases, and then when, when it actually launches, there's communications that go around that. And then the docking, I mean the photos. I'm sure you saw the photos of MEV docking with that satellite in space. No one had ever taken a photo like that in space for public use for the public before. That's been that's just amazing. So and then we're still talking about it. We have our second MEV2, which is about to launch here fairly soon. And you know it's it's those long campaigns all of the same communications tactics go in to any of these events right It's just the scale. So the scale of a launch option is a smaller timeline where this was was over the course of a year year and a half still do press releases, social media, websites, media engagement, thought leadership,
0: getting people on panels to speak and things like that. Sean, what's one of the most challenging circumstances that you've had to communicate? and share with audiences? Is it the technical stuff or is it the stuff that doesn't go as planned?
1: Probably one of the most difficult things, I've had a couple, communicating about the shuttle retirement was probably the most emotionally taxing 18 months of my career. You know, anyone who touched that program was so invested in it. I supported communications for that in various capacities for that 18 months. So, you know, Working with NASA over the, the shuttle transition and retirement efforts, it, you just see so many people who've invested three plus decades of their career, and it's coming to an end. And we all knew it was coming to an end, but just the emotion behind that was really, really strong. But honestly, the most challenging event was supporting a launch failure and communications around the launch failure. And you know, in our career field, we we plan for these days always that's just part of what we do and it's it's just so interesting how when you have to put it in practice and you know that's that's kind of where the professionals are separated from the you know from the amateurs so you you see who can hold their composure and and can you separate the emotion from what's going on and just get your get your job done you have you have to communicate what happened. you have to be transparent transparent as you can be while rapidly responding to a multitude of
0: media inquiries and,
1: and speaking in front of the camera, prepping your executive.
0: You talked a little bit about this in social media. And obviously when you talk about a launch failure and social media it literally becomes the the first mention and the first capture of that particular event, I, I'd like to explore with you a little, how is social media changed the communicators role? Has it made it easier? Or has it made it harder?
1: I think it depends on your perspective. Pre social media, you had to have a really solid hook to get any coverage for your story. And you had to be a good salesperson to pitch the media to get some interest around what you were doing. You know, even, even with NASA, for the longest time, shuttle I don't want to speak on behalf of NASA, but, you know, I was there for so long, like shuttle missions became routine, but when social media came on the board, on the scene, automatically there was an opportunity to engage the public in ways that they had never been engaged, had the ability to be engaged before instantaneously. So, in a way, it made getting our message out easier. But again, like I said before, it also opens you up to scrutiny because there's a lot more opportunity for those armchair analysts to, to rip apart your message. It it makes getting your story out easier, but it makes controlling the message harder.
0: Sean, what's the most misunderstood or underappreciated aspect of being a communicator in the space community?
1: I think as a communicator, you know it's not just the space community, but as a communicator, a professional communicator in general. You've got to be able to show how your contribution is showing value to the business. I think measurement is imperative. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of engineers, a lot of scientists, and, and even some program managers I've worked with over the past couple of decades, there, there have been some people who don't understand the value of communications, why do we throw budget money at that when we're we're just trying to launch things into space? What's the point, right? But I always came at it from you know why put your life to work into engineering a new spacecraft or developing a long-term mission if no one's ever going to know about it and proving to your internal partners that that's your job. Your job is to to show the world or show the community the great things that they're doing and showing value for your work. That's probably one of the the things that I have run into in quite a few places that I've worked.
0: I wanna ask you that obviously you've communicated with media, you've communicated with executives, but you've also been a communicator for another really tough audience, children. Tell me about the skills that it takes to become a children's book author. Uh, Sean is the author of a book called Princess Ava's Great Space Adventure. I'd love to hear how you came about the book and the challenge of communicating with the with those smallest and most unique of audiences.
1: Uh, when I was getting my master's, uh, my master's degree was in writing and design. And I had I had the opportunity to do a standard, you know, traditional thesis or a project, like a capstone project. And so I thought, well, if it's writing and design, why don't I write and illustrate a book? My daughter Ava was, oh gosh, I think she was six or so at the time, and she had expressed an interest in space. You know, we we even did our family photos on site at Johnson Space Center when she was five. So she's got to to see some pretty cool space stuff in her short time on this planet. She got me interested, uh, got got the thought in my head, like, why don't I write a book for her? So I wrote it with her in mind. It's about her inquisitive nature and her wanting to be both a princess and both uh, a space explorer how it's okay to be girly, but be smart at the same time. And there's a little bit of adventure in there. So, so yeah, so she is the one who got me interested in putting that book together for my master's program and then communicating it down to her level. I mean, she actually helped me shape the story. So I would read different iterations to her and and ask her opinion. Do you think that makes sense? Are those words too big? And she'd say, mommy, I think you should say it this way. And she helped me very much craft that message.
0: So you had your own in-house book critic?
1: I did, I had my own in-house editor.
0: I was gonna say, and did she get any part of the proceeds there?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: You don't and have to answer she, that, I'll leave that one.
1: She has her own autographed copy.
0: What advice do you have for a young person who might wanna enter the space community and be one of its leading communicators?
1: my advice for what it's worth is to not limit yourself to one discipline early in your career. Learn to write and to speak and to educate, learn social media, build a website, make a video, you know, learn all the nuances of media relations and and build a foundation for what communications truly is. And if you're coming into space, there's so many different things you can do in space, right? Work for an up and coming company, work on CubeSats or communicate about 3D printed rockets or, you know, there's there's just so many different things that you can do. But the broader knowledge that you have on what space means and the civil space versus the national security space and all of the different things involved and, and basic concepts and physics and launch and orbits, it's all really important. So I guess what I'm saying is be that space renaissance person if you want to learn and and be really strong in your career just don't stop learning and try new things as often and as early as you can
0: sean i've got a final question here for you that any of us as communicators have all sort of hypothesized about uh the the mission that uh we'd like to be a communications lead on for I'd like to know what's the mission that you would love to plan the communications for and what do you think you can do to make that mission that much more memorable and engaging?
1: Any role that I could ever play in our first manned mission to Mars would be a dream. And I know that's, that's not unique to me, right? You probably would love to do the same. That's going to be phenomenal when we, we do get to send people to Mars for the first time. And to make it more engaging, honestly, we need cameras everywhere, and we need live feeds. <laughs> That's not, and not to be afraid of that. That's what really captures people's attention, is being able to put yourself in that environment and go along with the crew.
0: Sean, thank you for that. And thank you for your time and sharing your experience as a space communicator. Uh, I, the Being a communicator in this arena, is uh, it is a pleasure. It is an honor. It is also a challenge. And I think you captured some of that in our conversation today. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: And with that, we're going to wrap up this episode of Space For You. We've been joined by Sean Wilson, who's the Director of Media and Public Relations at Northrop Grumman Space Systems. Keep an eye out on the Northrop Grumman Space Systems for a lot of the work that Sean and her colleagues do. They've got a mission coming up as a station resupply and a lot of other great stuff that the Northrop Company does uh, to make our space adventure more accessible, more successful, and more knowledgeable. I'm Rich Cooper, again, with the Space For You podcast at the Space Foundation. It's a pleasure to have you as a listener. I invite you to continue to follow what we're doing at the Space Foundation at spacefoundation.org, as well as discoverspace.org, which has lots of space content. Uh, particularly for STEM education activities for parents, teachers, and students. And as always, we depend on the support of companies, friends, and supporters like you. You can always reach out to find how you can get involved and support our mission by going to spacefoundation.org. Because at the Space Foundation, we always have space for you. Thank you.